some reform people have said, okay, we will grant that this person can get divorced, but we won't acknowledge they can get remarried. Well, it's not a true divorce if you can't get remarried. That's just a fiction because if the divorce is biblical, the remarriage is biblical. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 102, and I'm your host, Jared Luchiborg. Thank you for joining us. Last week, Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history, elaborated on the Reformation and its view towards marriage. Well, he continues to track with that, this time focusing on the Reformation's high view of women and the Reformers' teaching on divorce. Again, Jared, always a a happy occasion for me to be with you and your listeners. I hope it is for them. We were talking last time about the wonderful reality of the Reformation of marriage, which is to say the Protestant Reformation, for which we're all so grateful We think about that particularly in the fall of the year as we're coming into that time. The Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, not only dealt with some of the kinds of doctrines that we're so accustomed to in terms of salvation and doctrines of the church, but it dealt with a whole host of very practical things, including what we could call the Reformation of marriage. And we saw last time that it had, uh, that it fostered a, a more biblical view of sexuality and of its place within marriage. Um, I want to talk uh, this time, uh, as we wrap it up, about also the contribution of the Reformation uh, to a higher view of women, and that's significant in terms of marriage and their place in marriage, uh, a higher view of women, and then to end talking about the biblical teaching on divorce, which again, the Roman Catholic Church is and in, in, was and is not clear on. The Reformation and its return to the Bible emerged not only, as we saw, with a higher view of sexuality, but with a higher view of women. Earlier, Christianity had advanced over pagan notions, declaring a woman to have been created in the image of God uh, and thus to be fully a person. And you might say, well, who didn't think women were created in the image of God and fully persons? All sorts of pagans. All sorts of people today, certainly um, you don't get that in Islam. You don't get the notion that women are as much in the image of God as men. There's no sense of that. You don't get even in Asian cultures, in historic Asian cultures, where women may walk 10 paces behind the husband. If they really go according to these kind of traditions, you don't get that view from there either. Where do you get this high view of women? And people might be saying feminism. Well, You get it from the Bible, and you get it from the recovery of what the Bible teaches uh, in the Reformation. But we do need to say this, that the church's view of women, though the uh, we say Christianity had advanced over pagan notions, the church's view of women, particularly in the ancient church and the medieval church, remained improperly developed. Just notice those words carefully, improperly developed, needing more development. The rhetoric of the Middle Ages uh, often portrayed women as temptresses 
and sources of distraction for men. Men were pursuing serious things and women are trying to take them away from that. That's often put out there. And it's even put out there by Christians who aren't properly living up to the biblical testimony. The Reformation recovered the implications of the biblical truth that men and women are both made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and that there is neither male nor female in Christ, Galatians 3.28. This pointed, things like Genesis and Galatians, pointed to an ontological equality between male and female. And what we mean by that fancy $64 word is uh, an equality of being. They're both fully human in God's image even as there is such equality in the persons of the Godhead, uh, whatever functional differences there may be. So it took some time for the fuller implications of the full personhood of women to work itself out in civil society. This too is a part of the legacy of the Reformation, that it, in civil society, women coming to be understood as fully human and full persons. While the Enlightenment and the secularization that it engendered have affected men and women in some not almost, not always most helpful of ways, the reformational heritage of ontological and soteric equality, that is, men and women are the same being and they both have the same need for salvation and are saved in the same way (laughs) by Christ, uh, that is a wonderful thing, a good thing. And with respect to the latter, uh, think of it this way. Uh, all men and women are fallen in Adam, and the new humanity is restored in Christ. They're not different ways of salvation for men and women. Rather, salvation is through the one mediator between God and humanity, the one who, eternally God, added humanity to his deity. So 1 Timothy 2.5 doesn't use the Greek word for male there when it says there is but one mediator between God and man. It actually means between God and humanity. And then it says the man Christ Jesus. But that's not the word in Greek for male either. So it doesn't mean the male Christ Jesus. It means the human Christ Jesus is a proper way to translate that. So when it speaks of The human Christ Jesus, when it speaks of him as being the one mediator between God and humankind, we see here what is at at stake. The point is not to downplay that Jesus is male, but to highlight what really is his issue, his humanity. That is to say, he became a human being so that he might reconcile human beings to God. He is a male, of course, but that's not what's in view in Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, that's not what's in view. His maleness, um, no. And, and it's important to say that because maleness is in view in many pagan cults of the time when Paul was writing. And in these pagan cults, salvation is exclusively for males. Uh, and women, if they're saved at all, are saved in a different and decidedly inferior way. So Paul is being quite countercultural when he says there's one God, uh, that there's one mediator between God and humankind, the human Christ Jesus. He's stressing his humanity and he's stressing this one way of salvation. So Jesus came to save 
both males and females to call men to love their wives, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and to live with them in an understanding way, 1 Peter 3, 7, even as he calls women to submit to their own husbands, regarding them with love and respect. Matthew Henry, I think a lot of you know this, but I think he he got it pretty pretty good, to put it that way, when he said this, um, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. You know, it's a poetic way of putting that, but I think it's pretty nice. And I think it captures a proper reformational understanding of male and female and of husband and wife in the marriage, Uh, not a view of husband is the harsh, despotic tyrant, uh, which sadly has often played out. So at the same time, having said that, talked about uh, a better view of sexuality, a higher view of women, at the same time the Reformation recovered a more biblical and higher view of marriage, it also, in rejecting marriage as a sacrament, recovered the biblical teaching on divorce. Since marriage for the Roman Catholic Church was a sacrament, the relationship that it established could never be altered. Now, we don't have the time to take in and, and go through that, but the, the view that the Roman Catholic Church had with respect to both of those sacraments of life, you might say, that set your life, either marriage or holy orders, ordination, they took both of these as being uh, inviolable and unalterable. In other words, if you're married, you must stay married forever, more or less. We'll say a little about that more. And certainly, if you've taken holy orders, if you're ordained, you you may never leave them for any proper reason. This is something you stay in. Um, and so, Rome taught that even in the case of adultery, the most that the innocent party could press for was what they called separation of bed and board. This meant that the spouses could live separately, but the marriage was not actually dissolved. Such dissolution of a marriage, according to the Roman Catholic Church, could come only, could come about only by annulment, which is the declaration of the church in its courts of canon law that there never was a proper marriage in the first place, and thus that the bond was null and void. There was never a proper marriage. Again, we could talk about all the conditions of that, but we don't really have time to do that here. Just, just think that, and I would say there is a proper place even for annulment. In other words, if someone completely misrepresented to another person um, who they were, let's say they had been married three times and they didn't tell the other person and they didn't, and the other person knew nothing about that, upon discovery of that, Protestants believe that gives a just cause to say there was never properly a marriage here because it was entered into on totally false grounds. And the uh, the party, one of the parties had no idea who they were really marrying. Uh, and I know people out there might say, well, none of us know who it is we're marrying. I don't mean that. I don't mean you get to know a person. I mean a completely false representation does not oblige one it's part of contract law. This is you can't misrepresent in these ways. 
Well, the reformers came to understand that adultery and desertion by the unbelieving party, and there are, of course, different ways to talk about desertion, uh, not only just physically leaving, but um, serious abuse, financial abuse of a serious kind. There, there are different ways that that Puritans and others have talked about desertion. But adultery and desertion by the unbelieving party forms ground sufficient for divorce, and the innocent party in such cases is free to sue out a divorce, to use that language, and to remarry, to use again the language of the Westminster Confession, as if the offending party were dead. This was clearly expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, uh, on of marriage and divorce, as it was also Puritans before the assembly expressed this this view, such as William Perkins and William Ames. It was also the position of many of the continental reformers. For example, we have from the writings of Martin Bootser and Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, we have pretty clear statements that really parallel what you find in the Westminster Standards, that the grounds for divorce are uh, adultery uh, and desertion, uh, with different kinds of definition being given to that, which cannot be remedied. The reformers believed, in other words, that the Bible provided for genuine divorce because it permitted remarriage after such, understanding that if the divorce was biblical, the remarriage was biblical. In other words, we sometimes get questions. Sometimes people in some of our circles will say, okay, a person may get, uh, let's say there's been adultery, and some people, some reform people have said, okay, we'll grant that this person can get divorced, but we won't acknowledge they can get remarried. Well, it's not a true divorce if you can't get remarried. That's just a fiction because if the divorce is biblical, the remarriage is biblical. But we don't want to end on this note. We don't want to end on a note about divorce because the reformers strongly taught against the sins that led to a legitimate divorce. In other words, they were concerned about that. Don't commit these sins. Don't don't commit adultery. Don't be abusive and abandoning. Uh, they they taught against such sins, and they counsel Christians to live in the marriage state in such a way that divorce would not be necessary. Many of the Puritans, as Leland Riken points out in his book on them, and I would commend that book. Uh, it's of some years now, but. Riken wrote a, a, a book called Worldly Saints, and it was about how the Puritans are not necessarily what you think them to be, these dour, uh, you know, dark people. But uh, he taught and teaches in these books, chapters three and five particularly, that many of the Puritans had rich and rewarding marriages and a fulfilling and joyful family life, and he talks about that. Uh, that the home was to engage in private worship as was the church in public worship and the individual and secret worship is made manifest in the Westminster Assembly's directory for family worship. So the Westminster Assembly published not only a directory for public worship, but a directory for family worship. You can Google that and see about this document even to help with family devotions because Christian marriage and family were seen together with the church as the bedrock of a stable society that advanced the good of mankind and the glory of God. 
We're very thankful for Dr. Strange and what he brings to the table with church history, among other things. Suppose you want to find a good overview of Dr. Strange's episodes on the Reformation and marriage. Well, in that case, you'll find one in the May 2017 issue of New Horizons, the denominational magazine for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You can locate that at opc.org nh. Next week, we launch a new series about a topic I don't believe we've touched on yet in our 100-plus lineup of episodes, worship. You can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows for more of our episodes. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.